0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Nicholas Rudder, co-founder and CEO of Sphere, a corporate education platform that's raised $5 million in funding. Nicholas, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brett.
1: Very happy to be here.
0: Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Of course.
1: Yeah. So my name's Nick. I'm the CEO of Sphere. I was born and raised in Australia. I'm not sure how much everyone knows about Australia, but um, the scale of I guess professional opportunities there's not quite the scale of the US and I actually tried to get out of Australia when I was about, you know, mid twenties, went in to go do an MBA over in Europe in London. I had really high hopes for it actually, but it actually wasn't quite the experience that I wanted. I found it actually quite underwhelming in a number of ways. It really had ridiculously outdated subjects, professors like really didn't have as much industry experience and everyone sort of wanted to into either consulting or banking, then COVID hit. So I was like in that whole, I guess, cohort of people that sort of had their MBA online. And really the education system at that point was a bit of a cartel, actually. They, They refused to drop prices despite the fact that you weren't getting the product that was on the tin. So at that point, that's when I started working on Sphere. I really wanted to make something that was far better, that was more applicable, more engaging, taught by the best instructors in the world. And so I started working on it Sphere in London and then ended up moving it to the U.S. And that's where I am now in San Francisco. And what was that
0: journey like moving to the U.S.? Did you have any concerns or were you just ready to go and, and get, get to SF and get on the ground?
1: Yeah, so i always wanted to move to SF. Uh, frankly, i like would be in Australia and like the startup environment is nowhere near as big as it, as it is in SF. And a lot of Aussies look up to SF as this like tech mecca. I'd always wanted to go there. hadn't had the chance started working on the business in London and a lot of our customers were coming from the US anyway. So it was the perfect opportunity to jump over. We, Me and my co-founder literally dropped everything. He was working in Oz at the time. We packed up our bags, moved our lives over here and, and gave it a go and it's, it's going well so far. Nice, that's awesome.
0: Who are like the Australian tech companies that you look up to? The only one that I can even think of, which
1: yeah, I'm sure there's more is, is Canva. They're Australian, right? Yep. They are. They are indeed. I actually admire Melanie Perkins quite a lot. She's, she's awesome. She basically showed a lot of Aussies that you can create one of the most valuable companies in the world, regardless of where you came from. She came from WA and like, as far as Australia goes, Australia is a small pool, but WA is like an even smaller pool. WA for everyone who doesn't know is Western Australia, as I said. So I really admire what she's done with Canva. It's just, a bit of a juggernaut now. And I also admire the fact she did it with her husband. I think it would be super hard if I think of me and my partner starting a company. I don't know if i I could do that, but uh she's managed to do well. But I will also say there's been lots of other amazing Aussie companies. And actually our current investor, Felicis, has backed a lot of them. So they backed Canva, Culture Amp is an Aussie company, Alassian, another one. And there's some up and comers as well. Dovetail. So yeah, there's lots of good talent in Oz. They tend to jump over to the US though because they want to get out of the, the small bubble of, of Australia. <laughs> yeah, not sense. to say I will say though that it is one of the most beautiful countries in the world, and like it has so much going for it. And I do think the startup scene is getting better, but I I think it's still got a ways to go. Do you ever plan
0: on uh, returning to the homeland and moving back to Australia? Like, is that the long term goal? I
1: would love to do that. I mean, that's what Atlassian did, right? Like they sort of came here, they grew it. Uh, it came here to SF. They grew the business, and then they sort of relocated the whole HQ back to Sydney. And you know, Mike Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar—I mean, I never know how to pronounce his name, Scott—but anyway, they're very involved in Aussie politics now, and and very big icons over there. I'd love to build a business here and bring it back to us because, frankly, the quality of life there is pretty pretty hard to beat: surfing, sunshine. Yeah, yeah. nice. Love that. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is just the fact that you're
0: here in SF and as we talked about in the pre-interview, I'm here as well. Uh, when I moved here six months ago, a lot of my friends who don't live in SF were asking, you know, what's wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? Have you not seen in the news what a shithole it is and the homeless and the drugs and you know, all of that type of stuff? You moved here, you said, what, two years ago, which nothing yep. was even worse back then. So did you have a lot of people asking, you know, what are you thinking moving there or was it pretty obvious and clear,
1: you know, what was guiding your decisions? I did have a lot of people questioning our decision. You know, we were going there when everyone was leaving. It was like right at the end of COVID, there was all these headlines around the mass exodus of SF. But as I said, I'd always wanted to give it a shot. And so I wanted to come here and check it out. And frankly, I've now, my journey with Sphere has had me explore the Australian startup ecosystem, the British startup ecosystem, but I've got to say, honestly, it doesn't even compare to San Francisco. Obviously we were helped going into the Y Combinator batch. You know, that does help get attention of investors, but the sheer volume and number of VCs means that terms are far more agreeable for founders. Whereas in London and in Australia, you tend to see basically a collection or like a group of VCs being the top VCs. They get all the deal flow and then they push pretty average terms to founders. And just comparing what those terms were between that and SS, it was a stark difference. Yeah,
0: makes sense. Sure. It's a no brainer at that point. Yeah. Two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what CEO do you admire the most and why? And we already talked about Canva, so it, uh, it can't be someone from Canva. Canva was literally the one that,
1: uh, <laughs> that I had picked, so that's interesting. But um, yeah, look, I would say then the other one, again, going off the Aussie line, uh, Mike and Brooks, I would say, is, is someone that I also look up to. It's hard not to look up to people that have come from where you're from. Like they've sort of come from very normal backgrounds. They've built something that is a globally recognized company and product. And, you know, they come back to Australia, they bring jobs back, they help build the startup ecosystem in Australia. So for me, I really look up to those founders, the Alaskan founders and the Canberra founders as well. Nice. Those are good call outs. Did you follow, um, I guess
0: he's in SF as well, uh, Michael Dunworth. Do you know him? I did not know Michael Dunworth. Who's he the founder of? So he started Wire, I believe is the name. And they had that uh, kind of devastating, because <laughs> I think they sold for one point. $4 billion or something like that. And it was all over the, uh, or there was some news in Australia that I read about, you know, the Aussie founder moved to the US, you know, came back, you know, walked away, I think with like 400 million. Um, yeah. So it was all over Aussie news. And then uh, the deal got pulled and uh, they ended up not selling. And oh. I think the companies closed up. So random side note, but I was just uh, following that story a couple months ago and thought that was just pretty brutal. That is definitely brutal. But
1: yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't following that story. Definitely <laughs> not fun. Now. Definitely not a happy ending there. Yeah, it's tough. All right. Now let's, uh, let's talk books. So, is there a
0: specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this can be a, a business book or it can be a, a personal book that's just
1: influenced how you view the world. Yeah. I'm going to take it down at a level of grandioseness because, and it'll be a shout out to a recent one that I led and it had a big impact on our business. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, Pete Cassanji's book, Founder Led Sales. Basically, so just for context, Pete Sanji basically is a very reputable person in the sales space, sort of has a community called Modern Sales Pros and has written this book, which is all around like sales strategy and GDM strategy for founders. And it I read it over actually, Chris, the, the, the Christmas that's just gone and pointed out all the things I was doing wrong as a founder, sort of driving the GTM motion in my business gives you a step by step guide on how you should be running sales at the early stage. Yeah. And for me, the key takeaway that I took was how important it was for me to be really driving that GTM effort. Like I was already doing it, but really making sure that you're on all the demo calls, making sure how to set up like, you know, a good sales telemetry system. So like tracking your metrics across the whole funnel. And then also like what are the key sales assets that you want and that you should be having, you should be creating and, and improving upon. So for us, it's massively improved our go to market in a very short space of time. So that's had a big, big impact on the business for sure. And how far
0: out are you away from having a transition from founder led sales, would you say? I
1: think we're, we're pretty close. So at the moment, you know, we've closed a number of enterprise deals, or I've closed a number of enterprise deals. And this is something actually that he covers in his books like, when should you bring on first sales hire? We actually just brought on our first sales hire again because I closed, you know, twenty to thirty of these larger scale enterprise deals, and and that's the rule of thumb is about twenty. Um, mm-hmm. from what I hear from my advisors and other founders, and I think like even when you bring that person on, you still want to be driving the effort and you know have that salesperson ghosting you, seeing how you're doing it, and yeah, I think for me, when is the point? I guess when. That new sales client takes over. I think we're still a ways away. I think we still have some things in the go to market that we need to finalize, you know, just around creating that repeatable playbook that you can just put more people on. I don't think we're quite there yet, though. So basically, yeah, when that person takes over will probably be, I would say, another couple of months from now. Is that scary? That idea
0: of having a, a salesperson take over these conversations and having sales happen without you? I
1: think it comes down to hiring the right person and sort of having them ghost you enough so that they're very confident and, you know, clear on what the playbook and the angles are. Yeah, I guess there always is a bit of nervousness, you know, especially when you're a Taipei person, which I would say I am, is you always have a bit of trouble letting go of what you've been running for a while. But I do trust the person that we've brought on and, um, and I think like we put the right training in place so that when it comes time to hand over the reins, I'll be, I'll be pretty confident in his ability. Nice. Very cool.
0: And now I know we touched on the origin story there at the start and it really blended together with your personal journey. So let's just talk about the product. So what are customers paying you for and what does the product do for them?
1: Yeah. So basically what our platform does is that we're a platform that allows businesses to upskill their workforce through live interactive courses. So right now, what happens is businesses buy these live courses, as the name suggests, they're synchronous. So learners and professionals who are coming into the courses can ask questions. They join with a community of other professionals. So they're also learning from the challenges that their businesses are facing. And the content is very hyper-targeted to learning a functional skill for a particular job. So we tie all the course objectives and learning objectives to moving the needle on a business KPI. So the whole idea is that businesses are sending their courses and their people through these courses, they're going to get an economic ROI. And we actually work with companies where they'll share data pre and post the course on those KPIs to be able to show uplift. So that's really what the businesses are coming in for initially. Then on top of that, they get access to a broader platform where they get... So on top of the live courses, they get an asynchronous content library around the particular topics, which includes templates, job aids that learners can take to their business, apply to the current challenges they're facing. And then on top of that, we also have an alumni community. So it doesn't just stop after the course finishes. You get ongoing access to a broad range of over 3,000 professionals, all in similar roles and exclusive alumni events with other leading ML and AI experts. And sorry, the other thing that I should have maybe um, clarified is a lot of what we focus on right now is technical skills around machine learning, data science and data engineering, which is very hot topic and something in a lot of demand from enterprise at the moment. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) And can you define what interactive means
0: to you? Uh, Is that just, you know, they can send emojis and thumbs up that they like what they're seeing. They can comment and speak with each other as they're listening into the instructor. What does interactive mean?
1: Yeah, so interactive really revolves around this idea of live cohort based courses. So people join these live sessions. The sessions are usually five sessions across three weeks. That's the average course structure. And what happens is they'll join those live sessions and they'll be live with the expert who will be delivering content, but also there'll be activities within those sessions as well. So you're able to ask. So as the expert is delivering content, you can ask questions, which is a natural thing that you want to do when you're learning. You'll also be engaging in exercises where you'll be working with other cohort members to apply the learnings. So it's, it really is something that you, it's a two-way sort of interaction and experience. Whereas the old school e-learning, the Courseras and the Udemy's of the world, it's very one way. It's just video on demand. You're working through modules and there's no interaction with other people or the instructor. Makes a lot of
0: sense. And then what does that competitive landscape look like then? Is it those companies you just mentioned with Coursera and Udemy or who are those big competitors? And then who are just the other
1: competitors that are emerging? So there are three big buckets. In-house training, it's a big one. So basically, a lot of companies will look to develop their own content. But obviously, that's expensive. It's time-consuming. They're only limited to the experts they have within that company. And obviously, the same networking there as well, maybe within the company, but not outside of it. Then on the other bucket, I would say is the what we call e-learning 1.0 providers. It would be the Coursera's, the Udemy's, the asynchronous learning providers, There, because everything's one way, you really have very low engagement rates from learners. The completion rates on Coursera and Udemy are widely known as being around 4%. So low single digits. Our completion rates are 80% plus. So it's a vast difference. And really like what a lot of really a lot of businesses when they do use an external learning provider, it is those big asynchronous learning libraries. They're very much a tick-the-box solution versus a move that needle for your team solution. Then you've got live learning. We're in that bucket. There are some players that we compete in against in that bucket. Maven is probably one that we come up against, although it's not real. They're the only other, I would say, live learning provider. So they offer so co-op-based courses, but it's very much B2C-focused, not B2B-focused. They'll allow anyone to come in and be an instructor as well, whereas we very much curate our instructors. They're all like top industry leaders in from leading companies. And so, yeah, they have a very much B2C focus. We're very much B2B focused. So no one competing in that B2B live learning marketplace right now, which is what gets us excited.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And looking through the website, there's some very impressive logos there. So you have Shopify, you have Tinder, Flexport, Stripe, and that's just yeah you know, a few of the big logos. What's the secret, man? You got to tell us. So being an early stage startup, I know enterprise sales isn't easy. How'd you pull it off? How'd you manage to land such an impressive list of logos?
1: Yeah, so we have a product-led sales strategy. And I would say that's like part of our secret sauce is... I mean, it's not really a secret. Lots of companies now are employing this, but it's very much a a novel GT go-to-market approach. So what happens is individuals from a company sign up for our courses. They see these amazing instructors. They want to learn from them. They sign up for the course. They'll expense it to their L&D stipend. Then what happens is they have a good experience. They go tell the rest of their team. More from that team comes in. And then what happens is you start to accumulate a certain number of people within a business. So we tend to ask sort of magic numbers around like 10 to 12 people within a business. That's when the sales team will come in. So previously me, but now me and and my sales and my account execs will come in and then have the conversation with the business. Like, look, you've already spent 20, 30K with us. You may as well jump on an enterprise subscription. You get a discount on all courses in the library plus a number of other value-add features. So when we go into the enterprise sale, we actually already have leverage because we're basically pointing to the, the 20 or the 10 to 15 people that have already spent money on it. So that's something that has helped a lot in the conversations and has helped us move quickly through sales cycles. Did you know it was going to be PLG from
0: day one when you launched the company? Or did that just naturally kind of develop as you were bringing it to market?
1: It naturally developed. To be honest, when we first started, it was quite B two C focused. Then we just noticed that you know the topics that we were sort of creating courses around were just drawing in a professional crowd. Eighty percent plus of people were using the L and D step and we just were looking at the alternatives to what these businesses were buying for employee upskilling, and they were so lackluster. They people literally weren't using them. And we were like, look, this is a, this is a great opportunity to, I guess, disrupt those incumbents. And that's what we did. And then the thing that's even more exciting is the areas that we focus on now, which is AI, ML, data science, like that field is changing so quickly that our model, which is live courses where we, and we can spin up those courses quickly allows us to produce fresh content in a roughly like a two month period. Whereas the Courseras and the universities of the world will need to take nine months to create a course. They'll spend a quarter of a million dollars per course and they just can't compete with the speed to market that we can, we can basically execute on.
0: And I know you sell or learning and development
1: departments are, I'm guessing, the decision makers. Is that correct? It's not. Right. So what happens is actually we sell to team leads. Um, mm-hmm. So when we go in for the enterprise subscription, it's normally the team lead that we're selling to because they're the ones that care about functional skills. Mm-hmm. I would say that L&D have more of a focus on compliance and leadership training. But often what will happen is the team lead will bring in an L&D person to help execute the transaction. But really, the decision is made by the team lead. For bigger deals, where you're starting to go across multiple different teams in a business, that's when you're dealing with central L&D. So it's it's a progression. You go like individual, team lead, and then L&D. And does L&D
0: report to HR? Or who does L&D typically report to in these big, massive organizations?
1: Is it part of HR? Yeah. So typically, it changes business to business, but L&D will typically report to HR. There are sometimes, yeah, some caveats to that. But that is normally the status quo. And over the last few months, have you seen
0: buyer behavior change in any way? Obviously, the uh, the whole tech ecosystem is uh, going through some changes right now. Have you felt any of those changes or have there been any changes for you in terms of buyer behavior?
1: Yeah, there has. So everyone is very well aware of what's going on in AI right now. There is obviously a bit of a tectonic shift happening with GPT-4 on the horizon Everyone's seen the hype around CHAP-GBT, but some of our instructors who are at the forefront of uh, of AI are basically saying that's the tip of the iceberg. So in turn, how that's translated to buyer behavior, who we normally sold to, let's say for the last year and a half, it's been forward thinking tech companies, usually Series B plus, where there's an L and D budget in place. But with this whole wave of new artificial intelligence company, that it's not only going to impact How engineers work, but also how salespeople work, how content works, how finance works. It's, there's going to be a lot more larger, more traditional businesses looking to upskill and leverage artificial intelligence so as to not let get left behind. And we're already starting to see that. So that's exciting to see. It's a wave that we're definitely riding and we're very well positioned for it because it's AI is not just going to be a plug and play thing. It's businesses are going to have to learn how to leverage AI in their jobs in order to have the competitive edge. Otherwise, they will get left behind. So that's something we're really excited about. And we're seeing a shift happening right now. Nice. So you must
0: have been pretty stoked then. In, uh, when did ChatGPT come out? Was it November last year? I think it
1: was this year, I believe. What? I don't know the exact date, but I believe it was a couple of months ago. Or well, it may have come out a little earlier. But yeah, definitely there's a huge amount of hype now. I mean, we did go to the, the OpenAI offices this week. It was a YC founders event. And yeah, as I said, it's, there's some extremely exciting things in the works. And I think that's why we're certainly doubling down in, in, in AI. And we're looking forward to helping upskill businesses around the world to take advantage of it. Nice. I love it.
0: And when it comes to market categories, how do you think about your market category? Is it? Corporate education? Is it live learning? Then, depending on what it is, is that just disrupting or transforming an existing category, or is this a category creation play for you?
1: Yeah. So we see ourselves in the corporate education space. It's been dominated by the traditional e learning players, Coursera's, as I said, the Udemy's, the plural sites, but they've largely just been tick the box solution. And I think businesses are cottoning on in the fact that no one's using them. And there is this demand for a more engaging learning experience that, know yeah, has an economic ROI for businesses that actually makes learners feel more engaged than sitting in the dark room clicking through modules, um, and yeah. So that we we see ourselves as disrupting that space, and then also, again, as I mentioned in my previous question pitching ourselves to this this whole wave of AI that those traditional players are just gonna take a long time to get any content up and running for. What excites you most about what's coming with uh, with AI? Obviously there's a lot of I feel like there's been buzz
0: around AI for the last like five years, but there was nothing really tangible there, at least from my perspective, it didn't seem like there was anything tangible. Chat GPT Seems very tangible. Yeah, like my mom was asking me about it. You know, like people can actually like, touch this technology and play with this technology. So just looking at AI, what excites you most about what's to come? What
1: excites me the most is that the use cases are now just so real. Like, Take a, a classic example of a software engineer. There is this fable of like the 10x software engineer, and everyone wants to get that 10x software engineer in their business. Every software engineer going forward is going to work with an AI. And that AI is going to make them 10 times more efficient by virtue of that. If the whole team learns how to leverage that, you will have a business that will be at a far huger advantage than a business that doesn't take advantage of that. And that is sort of, I guess, the shift that we're on right now. I think before in AI, like it was all around tinkering with models. You know, there was obviously some great use cases, but now it's just becoming widespread now it's becoming available to the masses. I mean, it really has a huge impact on business, as I mentioned in that example, but also for the individual as well. I mean, think about how search is going to change. Like it's been dominated by Google, but now you've got a basically, a, I guess, like a, a speech interface that could effectively give you everything you need. I mean, there's obviously lots of things to consider there and it's, it's not going to totally change everything overnight. But What excites me, yeah, is just the use case ability and the the fact that there are just so many use cases and opportunities of, I guess, the models that that people like OpenAI are releasing. And as I said before, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There are much more interesting things in the works. And it seems like we're on a a bit of a, a new wave here and something that could be equivalent to what happened when the internet was first launched. Totally. It's such exciting times.
0: You know yeah. it's exciting times when people are having a genuine conversation about how Bing could compete with Google. I don't like, <laughs> use this Bing, but no, those not. are the real headlines now, and it's you know it's actually viable. Like it does make sense that that could happen because it's well, like it
1: everything. Microsoft has just made some very wise decisions there. I was reading an article in the Washington Post that was written by oh, it was a, a guy was posted in it called David Hart. He's a very notable prompt engineer at the moment. Prompt engineering is a very hot skill area right now because that's one of the key skills in generative AI. So it's something we're very focused on. But anyway, this article was basically talking about how you know Google could go down in history as the company that had such a massive accumulation of like amazing AI talent that have all gone elsewhere to start their own businesses. Whereas, yeah, Microsoft has made some very wise choices to keep in-house. So, yeah, I don't know what's to come. But as in, yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen and who's going to be the winner. But um, it's definitely exciting times. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right,
0: Nicholas. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today's interview. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go?
1: Yeah, so... Three things you can do. Follow me on LinkedIn. Me personally, Nicholas Rudder. You can follow Spear as well. Again, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you want to know about our courses, go to our website, which is getSpear.com and sign up to our mailing list there. And that's the best place to keep up to today. Awesome. Thanks so much for
0: taking the time to talk about what you're building and share this vision. This is all super exciting and look forward to seeing you execute and come back on in a couple of years and talk about everything that's happened. Cheers, Brett. Appreciate it. Take
1: care.